All right, welcome to the Fit Vegan Podcast. I'm your show host, Maxim Seguin, and I'm the founder and CEO of Fit Vegan Coaching, a company that is on a mission to help 10,000 people get lean, thrive, and reduce their risk of chronic illnesses by 2033 and a million by 2050. I believe that having a fit, healthy body in mind is the foundation to living an incredible life, and this is what little show will give you if you choose to listen and implement. Enjoy the episode and have a great day. All right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Fit Vegan Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. I'm going to read a little bio because it's very impressive. You're a very accomplished woman. Um, I'm going to read parts of it, but know that it's potentially 50 times longer than everything that she's accomplished. So Alexandra has appeared in over 100 featured films and television programs, usually as the first or second female lead. She's also internationally recognized from her five-year starring role as Stephanie Holden in the TV series Baywatch, which many people are familiar with. You're also a dedicated and accomplished athlete. So in, in uh, 97, you trained for the World Ironman Championship in Hawaii, which I didn't know that at first. Um, and yeah, basically completing Ironman is, com is completely incredible. You completed 13 hours and 18 minutes. You also swam uh, QS, a 12.5 mile race in 2014, and you swam 22 kilometers um, off the coast of Mexico. So Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be to be here uh, on your podcast after you appearing on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to have you here. Doing some research into you was very, uh, it was really cool. I definitely learned a lot of things. I, in my mind, I was a little bit familiar with you, um, but a little bit more with Doubtsy because of kind of the game changer. I didn't know you did so many things as an athlete as well. So I'd love to kind of dive into obviously it's a vegan podcast. So I'd love to dive into like what got you to become vegan and then we can dive into the rest after. Okay, great. Well, we'll start with that. I became vegetarian when I was 14 after reading a book called Diet for a Small Planet. This was 1974 or something. I'm 60 now. So, um, and it, and then a few years later, I read another book. I just think these books and movies are just so influential, right? And I read another book yeah. called Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. And that, the first book was more an envir environmental reason to go vegetarian, uh, to give up meat. But Animal Liberation was an animal rights treatise and really opened me up to what's going on with animals. And then in my 20s, I in my modeling and acting contracts, I would put in that, you know, the makeup used on me couldn't be tested on animals. I stopped wearing animals yeah. in my twenties, which was not easy in the early eighties. Yeah. <laughs> I basically had plastic shoes from Payless. That was pretty much my only option for shoes. Now yeah. you have a plethora of options. Um, but, and then, you know, it's one of the biggest regrets of my life, but it took me until I was 47 to actually go vegan, to get rid of the last vestiges of, of dairy and eggs. Yeah. And that was because I had struggled with an eating disorder in my twenties. And so I sort of used it as an excuse. Well, I don't know if I, I use it as an excuse, turned out to be completely incorrect. Um, but that if I deprived myself of certain foods, I might go back into the eating disorder I had for 12 years yeah. from 16 to 28. And what, so that was my story. And then um, one day when I just decided to go vegan, it was amazing the transformation that it had not only in me as a person 
and my outlook on life. You think, you know, 40 years as a vegetarian, I would 37 years as a vegetarian or something, I would have not had a huge change becoming vegan, just taking out some dairy. No, I had a huge change. I mean, I'd given up yeah. wearing animals, using animals in my cosmetics and lotions and products and, and eating animals, um, dead animals, but giving up that last vestige just changed me and also improved my relationship with food even more so that I was even farther away from ever going back to an eating disorder. Yeah. There's so, there's so many things I want to dive into here. So what, so what was the pivotal moment that made you go like, I need to remove the dairy? Cause obviously you were a vegetarian for 37 years. You could have continued on that path. Like what was the thing that made you go over the edge and make the full, the full transition? You know, it wasn't, it was, there were, there had to be many messages along the way, many thoughts, yeah. many videos that I watched, many people going, you know, you really, you know, many people that I met who were vegan. Um, yeah. the actual transition was that, um, my, I had a talk with my brother and he had been vegan since he was 16 and it hadn't really had a huge impact on me because he was a little bit preachy and you know, he's yeah. your little brother. So, yeah. um, but I have huge respect for my brother and I just, I think he said something about dairy being an excretion and full of pus and. You know, I don't know. It just had on October 10th of 2010, I, I told my husband, I said, I'm going to have one last frozen yogurt and then I'm done. And even that frozen yogurt didn't even taste that good. And of course we know yeah. that you can get frozen yogurt and ice cream and all sorts of things that are vegan anyway. So it didn't have to be this sort of, I'm never having anything like this again. Yeah. But once I decided I just decided. And I think in the first few days, it was probably a little bit like, what am I going to eat? So, um, you know, there was a little bit of that, but, and so I do think, and I think that's why people like you were so helpful that you can help people plan ahead. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it really was much easier than I thought. And then it became more, it became really a spiritual thing for me, even though I'm not a spiritual person, I have to say the change in diet. Um, I didn't even look at milk and dairy as food anymore. It's just not my food. Yeah. Yeah. N not intended for us ultimately. Um, yeah. so I'm curious what I'm going to ask this question for the people that are listening that are still justifying consuming dairy or eggs. So obviously I would say that you went pretty extreme at the start in terms of a lot of people will transition to eating vegetarian, but they won't cut out wearing leather or being careful with the makeup or the products that they use. And so for you, you made all of these changes, but you still justified consuming dairy. What was the justification in your mind that basically allowed you to go 37 years? Because I want for the people listening that are doing it to see <laughs> that the change is possible. Yeah, well, I justified it. Um, I guess I justified that dairy wasn't that bad. Like I was doing mm. all these other things. And those other things, by the way, took years. I mean, I stopped eating meat right away, but then taking yeah. out the other, the makeup and the, and the clothes and the products um, took years and really asserting myself in my life and saying, no, that's not my makeup, not my clothes, not my food. Um, that's an adjustment. Yeah. What sure. I've learned um, from now is that 
from all the doctors that Dotsie and I have interviewed on our podcast, Switch for Good, and we've done 260 um, uh, interviews, a lot of them doctors, every single one, except for one, Dr. Michael Greger, every single one said, giving up dairy is so much more impactful on your health and so much, so impactful for the animals and the earth. And most people don't think that. They think giving up meat is more important. And I thought that too. So for anyone thinking that they can sort of get away with dairy ethically and healthfully, just know that actually, you know, you're, you're keeping in the most harmful part of, you know, the vegan ecosystem or the non-vegan ecosystem. Sorry. Yeah. So let me take a wild guess. Did Dr. Greger say chicken? Was you know what? One? The Actually, the reason I think Dr. Greger said it, and we interviewed him in uh, 2021, maybe, and he might have said it because that study had just come out about how um, processed meat was a huge cancer causer. So yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if now he would still say that. Um, but that was what yeah. he came back with when we asked him that question. Personally, cutting dairy was the thing that made the world of a difference in kind of how I felt and my energy and, con you know, nose congestion, congestion, sorry, and all that. So what were some of the changes that you noticed when you cut out dairy? You know, I didn't, I personally physically did not notice a difference. And maybe it's because I didn't have a huge amount of dairy in my diet. I, I was never yeah. a cheese person. You know, a lot of people say they love cheese and they can't give up cheese. I was never a cheese person. I'm more of a, like sweets. So it was sort of yeah. the, you know, frozen yogurt. And I, and I did like Caesar salad, but otherwise I never added cheese to anything except okay. for if it was already in a salad, but I, mm. so, um, it was, and it was in, of course, eggs were in muffins and things like that, that I liked. So you meant the last part I heard was like, uh, there was eggs in a muffin. So basically it was just more of like a convenience piece that you didn't cut out these last little few things. Yeah, it was my convenience. I wanted what I wanted because I was afraid if I deprived myself, I might go back into my eating disorder, you know? Yeah. So it, it wasn't a huge amount, but you know, it was every day. It was every day. Um, it was more, uh, emotionally. I really, it was my heart just cracked open. I really saw the injustices in the world and more of my own biases in the world. It was really interesting. I had no idea that it would change me so much to make that one step, but it really did. And my heart opened up and I was more loving and patient and I can't, it's so, it was, it was such a surprise to me. Um, yeah, it was, it was a real surprise to me that I would have such a change like that. I thought I was doing it for the animals. It turned out that yes, it helps animals, but also helped me so much on a spiritual level. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people become more compassionate and empathetic once they transition and you know, not to say that that's the only reason, but when you think of it, you, as you guys know, because obviously you and Dutch are working in that world, like they're impregnating cows, they're super stressed. And so all the, the fear and the hormones are getting into the milk and then people are drinking the milk. I don't think it can be that good for your mood and your energy on a day-to-day -day basis.
No, you're exactly right. Yeah. So I, I, I definitely want to talk about the next chapter, kind of switch for good and all that. But I want to I want to talk back to the modeling days and your acting days because I used to do modeling internationally as well. And yeah. the makeup thing was was challenging. And that was that was been like a maybe like five that like was maybe like ten years ago. So how did you how did you navigate that? Because I think you mentioned like mid seventies is kind of when you started modeling and doing the acting. Uh, no, I started okay. So modeling, uh, it was the nineteen eighty, and I okay. only did it for a couple of years. And we had a you and I had a very interesting conversation about your modeling career and how um, people dealt with food and things like that. And I was I modeled when I was sixteen to eighteen. And then I was cast in a role to play a model in a TV movie. And so I, mo I moved to Hollywood and shot the film and, and never left. Um, so uh, it wasn't until I was in, so in my, my, I would tell my modeling agents, I wouldn't do any fur. So I wouldn't do, couldn't yeah. wear fur in any of my things. Makeup, there wasn't really, I didn't, I didn't assert myself there, although I was always happy to have Mac because Mac was around then. Um, yeah. Now I don't use Mac because they do test on animals now because they sell in China and they're forced to test on animals. But back yeah. then, Mac and Joe Blasco were the two companies that were cruelty-free. And so it, uh, like, because I was doing well in Hollywood, I was able, and I, and I had, I was playing the lead female often. Yeah. I could put that in my contract. That and more leverage. Makeup. I had more leverage. Yeah. And so, um, but I do remember doing a modeling job for British Cosmopolitan in Antigua. And uh, the only shampoo there was Flex, which which was Revlon, which was tested. So I, I was there for two weeks. I washed my hair with soap, with the soap bar, yeah. the bar of soap. <laughs> Nobody knew. <laughs> it was just me and my, uh, you know, feeling like ethics, like I had to, to just, you know. Um, but yeah, I'm sure the makeup that they put on me there was tested on animals, unfortunately. So yeah, but in the, in the 80s, early 80s, when I was in Hollywood, I um, started, I think it was probably 82 or three, my first or second year there, uh, I started putting that in my contracts. And it was funny because no one ever balked. None, the makeup artists were happy to accommodate me even back then. Um, yeah. They often didn't know what was okay. And so, and it was, you know, there was no internet there, so it was harder to figure it out, but yeah, um, yeah you could figure it out. Um, and there was, you know, two very um, uh, ubiquitous brands used in Hollywood, Mac and Joe Blasco, which well, I would just say that and they'd be like, oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I remember that's what I was using when I was modeling was Mac for our shoots and for the runway. It destroyed my skin though, but like, that's the only one I wanted to use, but mm. like, it just, it gave me so many, like, yeah, my, my skin was dry. I was getting like more pimples from it, but I kept going back to it because that's the only one I wanted to use. I know it sounds funny. A lot of people didn't know that I was wearing makeup when I was modeling. So a lot of people don't know me from those days, but yeah, it, it, yeah, it was tough on the skin, but that's the only thing I, that I wanted to wear because I was super vegan, uh, obviously still am, but, um, that's awesome. Yeah, I was just I was just curious kind of how it went, but I'm happy that Mac was around to kind of offer that option at the time and they didn't test at on animals. Time. 
Yeah. And it was, uh, and John Paul Mitchell was around then too. And they, they were actually the first brand that I remember that trumpeted the fact that they were not tested on animals. Um, so that was kind of cool. Now, a lot of companies will trumpet the fact, but back then that was not a thing until John Paul Mitchell. Yay, John Paul Mitchell. Yeah. It was definitely more of a cool thing now and companies feel like they need to do it. I have yeah. a lot of friends that are entrepreneur and kind of the startup phase. And yeah, when they talk about creating a product, they're like, it has to be vegan. It has to be cruelty free. Like it's a part of the considerations now mm. to build a successful company, which is awesome because it's, yeah. it's a, from the foundation up. Yeah. 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 So I, uh, if you're comfortable with it, I love to kind of dive into the eating disorder component with kind of going vegan. So sure. are you okay with that? Yes. Yes. I am. I have always admired how you are so honest about it too. So thank you. I think it's helpful that we just discuss it. Uh, I used to feel a lot of shame, but oh, I mean, yeah, I used to feel a lot of shame about it when I was in it. Um, but I discovered yeah. that just talking about it gets rid of that shame. And, you know, uh, as they say in the 12 step program, we're as sick as our secrets. So we have to talk about um, everything, <laughs> honesty. Yeah. Yeah. And when you own it, you get, you take the power back. And so it doesn't, it's not held over you anymore. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I always, when I was, uh, so I was anorexic when I was 16. And then because my parents got on me for losing weight and I secretly wanted to eat, I was sort of, I was yeah. glad that they were forcing me quote unquote to eat that, but I couldn't handle it. So I became bulimic. So I started binging and purging. So I went from de totally deprivation to binging and purging. And um, my weight was, you know, um, it wasn't super thin. So they thought everything was fine. I mean, it was normal. Um, interestingly, yeah. for everybody out there who might be dealing with an eating disorder and so afraid that if they stop the binging and purging, they will gain weight. I, my weight actually stabilized lower when I stopped binging and purging because, you know, we start something like this for a reason. Um, and then it becomes not really about that reason anymore. And it just becomes about coping with the addiction and it doesn't work. And so it wasn't even maintaining my weight that well. I mean, it was fine, but it, it's better when you don't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also there's a thing where the body is kind of grateful to get more vitamins and nutrients coming in and it starts to respond in a more positive way than most people think it would when they start eating again. So you mentioned that you didn't want to necessarily go vegan before out of fear that it would trigger the eating disorder. What was the fear there? Because you would basically be restricting, restricting certain types of food that you enjoyed. Yeah, I think it was a fear from, from my time of being an anorexic, um, that if I started to restrict certain foods that I would go back to that anorexic mindset. Um, but the truth is as a woman in America, you know, we always have this little voice in our head saying, do, don't eat this, do eat this, don't eat this. So yeah, I'm always, I've, I've been restricting, you know, being aware, not eating everything I wanted anyway, my whole life. I mean, all yeah. of us have to do that in this, in this, um, environment of fake foods and 
processed yeah. foods and so, so much unhealthy and addictive foods. Um, yeah, overabundance of calories. Yes. So we, we all have to be aware. So, but I did think, yes, that I was going to go back into my, um, into my anorexic phase or I would restrict and then I would want to binge. Uh, yeah. And and then I would throw up. But you know, so in at age twenty eight, when I stopped binging and purging, since then, so that would have been another thirty year. Was it right? No, twenty eight to forty. So twenty in nineteen years of not binging and purging, I think I only had maybe five times where I would say to my husband or somebody close to me. You know, I kind of feel like binging now, but I'm not going to. So I didn't even have the desire to binge because yeah. I had dealt with the reasons that I was anorexic in the first place and um, bulimic, which was basically that I wasn't being my authentic self. I was letting, I was doing things to please other people. I was trying to be nice. Nice was my North Star. I thought yeah. being nice was so important. And now I realize that being kind is so much more important. And there is a difference, uh, very much sure. difference. And in, being in, respected. In what you're willing to tolerate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Being kind is like an action that comes from, like you said, compassion. Being nice is trying to please other people. So yeah. uh, it's not really from me. There's, there's, you know, surprisingly a lot of people pleasing, especially nowadays, because if we just look at social media, right, isn't the whole point that people are trying to aim for likes and more followers. And so you're therefore creating or living your life or doing certain things to try to please the people, the strangers that are around you or following you online. Like I'll admit I've, I've fallen to that quite a few times. And that's when you start to develop really unhealthy behaviors and habits for yourself that are very self-destructive. And once you pull yourself back, you're like, screw everyone. I'm just going to do me. <laughs> and whoever likes it, likes it. And who doesn't, doesn't. That's okay. But it's, I feel that society is being conditioned a little bit with social media to be people pleaser. Because I hear there's so many of them around us. Well, what I've learned, what I, I had many lessons in this, and that ultimately... We have it, the more authentic we are to ourselves, the better it worked. And I, I have a concrete example in that I was hired to, to, to star on the show Baywatch where there were women, where every other woman who was on the show was very curvaceous, usually with um, implants for breasts, but sometimes not, the few not, but, and long blonde hair. And I yeah. was, am not curvaceous at all. I am an A cup. And if that actually, and I'm built like an athlete and my hair was brown, <laughs> long. It was long, but it was yeah. brown when I was cast. The, after the first season, I realized I can't be like these women. And, and they seemed to somehow, there was this expectation that I was, my character was supposed to somehow be those women, or maybe it was in mm -hmm. me. And I went to the producers and I said, I'd like to cut my hair short. Um, and they said, okay, great, fine. They were wonderful people. Um, and so I did. And I realized what I was doing was leaning more into me. Yeah. I am an athlete. 
I cannot, no matter, even if you gave me implants and long blonde hair, I just wouldn't exude that kind of sexiness that so many of my wonderful castmates did. It just wasn't me. And so when I leaned into being more athletic, more, uh, you know, just more powerful as a person and a character. Yeah. People knew who I was. I became, oh yeah, she's the smart one or she's the girl with the short hair or the small breast, whatever it was. But I set myself apart and that was actually so, such a strong lesson for me. Um, yeah. Like, oh, okay. So yeah, I know I can't be them. I, I, they're great. And I, why am I trying to be like that? Even though that's the expectation, let me just be more like me. And then after Baywatch, I did another tele, a couple of television pilots, television shows, and I loved doing Baywatch. It was amazing. It's such a wonderful experience being on the beach. You know, you didn't have to wear high heels or get your hair all dolled yeah. up and you were rescuing people and being in the ocean it was like a dream for me. So <clears throat> I, I was kind of disappointed with the work it wasn't, the work was great and the people were great. It just wasn't, I kept, it was like a first love. I was trying to get back to that feeling of being on yeah, such yeah. a wonderful show and I couldn't get, so I, I had the opportunity of participating in the Hawaiian Ironman and I have, I have, when I was invited and I was invited, I did not qualify because normally you, you need to qualify, but they were choosing me for PR purposes and they knew it was a good swimmer. And that's the hardest part of the Ironman, right? You, you got to make sure they can swim. Yeah. You can learn how to run and bike. Um, so they invited me and I thought, you know, I want to do this, but I knew I was going to have to train a lot. And if I wouldn't be able to work. Yeah. And so I went to my agent and I said, I'm going to take nine months off and I'm going to train for this because I've never done a marathon and I haven't been on a bike since I was 14. I was 34 yeah. at the time. And you're going to put all those together. <laughs> got to put all together. Right. And, yeah. um, and I knew how to swim. I had, don't think I'd ever swum two and a half miles like an Ironman, but I knew how to swim. I was pretty confident about that. And my agent said, go for it, Alexandra. There's more to life than Hollywood. And, um, I thought it was going to hurt my career. And what it did was so interesting because after you're on a show like Baywatch, which people back then at least looked on with real disdain and they thought you were just all sort of used, the actors were, you know, airheads and yada, yada. They didn't respect the show. They didn't respect the actors. Um, after you do an Iron Man, people back then when no, not many people had done an Iron Man, they respect yeah. you. And so yeah. my career actually improved. And I thought, wow, that that's such a good lesson to know that when you step out and do something that you need to do um, personally that excites you, it can often have benefits that you didn't even know about for years after that. Instead of people coming up to me going, you, you were on Baywatch, right? They would say, you did that race, right? Because it was highly publicized. Um, and, uh, and so it was... It was amazing. And um, yeah, I guess those were the lessons I learned in terms of, you know, you don't have to be nice to garner um, appreciation and respect from people, which is what all of us humans want. Um, yeah. Isn't yeah. it interesting oh. that you get more of that once you lean into who you truly are, but it's so, and I'll just kind of share from personal experience. I think it's hard for a lot of people to know who they are. I definitely struggled with that. 
and then to have the the strength to lean into it because then you know that you are like you mentioned setting yourself apart from everyone else and when while everyone is trying to fit in but the thing that people don't realize is that once you stand out you start to attract your people like the yeah. right people come to you versus trying to fit into a crowd of people that will never accept you in the first place because they don't even accept themselves yet tell me about what you mean by when you when you say you you didn't know who you were and you had trouble accepting yeah well i'll just i'll just grab like a recent example when when my late fiance passed away um i was her caregiver for five years that was that was who i was and so you know, and that's when I was training for Ironman at the time and doing all these races. That was my my alcohol, my drug. That was my distraction. And when she passed away, I was like, what do I do with myself? Like, mm. my friend's like, do something fun. I was like, I, I don't know what that is. What do you mean do something fun? I don't know what's fun. I was like, go get a massage, go play sports. And I did these things and I was like, yeah, they don't, they don't connect that much. And it took me a good, like, one and a half years to two years to be like, and now I'm more settled into it. It's going to be three years that she passed away in February. But now I'm more settled into it. Like, okay, I know what recharges my battery. I know what is fun. I'm way more certain of who I am and where I'm going. But it, it took time to kind of discover that when you've built your identity in something else that for me was out of need. Um, but mm -hmm. for certain people, it's just out of fear of not fitting in. So they'll pretend to be someone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and guess what? It's, it happens all throughout life. There's going to be another time just speaking as someone who's maybe 30 years older than you. No, not quite 25 years older, maybe, but, um, it's going, there are going to be several other times when we all have to change our identity a bit, whether it's, you know, for parents, it's when maybe they become parents or when they, yeah. the kids leave the nest or when you retire, when you get fired for athletes, it happens. Like I'm sure Dotsie and you might've discussed, she's done an amazing job of re having a, a, a full and exciting life after being an Olympian, but a lot of people can't make that transition. And um, yeah. And for me too, as an actress, you know, right now I'm taking care of my mother. I moved to Oregon out of yeah. LA it, to Oregon last year. And, um, it's been an identity change for me, um, completely yeah. because I, I can't really be an actor right now. Y you know, I still audition, but it has to be a really good job for me to be able to leave and leave it with my husband and my brother. So yeah. yeah, there's going to be identity changes. And so it's good for, for us to learn from the earlier ones. <laughs> yeah, def definitely. When she, when I stepped away from Ironman, that was a big and, and, um, identity shift because you know, when you did yours, you spent so much time training that it kind of becomes a part of who you are. And then once you're done and you don't train twice a day, six days a week, you're like, what do I do with myself? I don't, I know how to bike, swim and run several times a day. <laughs> But then you have to rebuild your identity into like, okay, I don't have to work out twice a day. I can be comfortable with not working out twice a day. Yeah, it's definitely a big adjustment. Um, yeah, I think it's important. I mean, for me, now I was always that kid in school who wasn't great at anything, but I did a lot of things, you know, like I was on this, this team and, and that club and did well in school and had friends, you know, sort of like that all around average person. Um, and it was really, it's really been important to me in my life 
as an actress to not just have acting. Like I was once in acting class and an yeah. actor who worked a lot was in next to me and he goes, oh, I'm so glad I have this class or I'd have no reason to wake up in the morning because he wasn't working as an actor. And I thought, oh my God, I am super busy when I'm not working as an actor because I have all my, you know, I work out, I have my volunteer stuff, so many, so much activism that really made me excited about life. And uh, so acting wasn't my only identity. Now that doesn't, for some people, they need to just focus on one thing and become great at one thing. Um, yeah. It's just that when you lose that or things change, it can be devastating. doesn't mean you can't pick yourself up. So I, I think my sort of well-roundedness has helped me weather the ups and downs of, well, certainly like a career in Hollywood, which, you know, it can, can be tough on the ego. Uh, and For sure. <laughs> but I always had something else to do that was my identity uh, and, you know, helped me through. Yeah, I think that's a, that's, I think that's a great approach because a lot of people stumble. The higher you go into your identity and then you kind of lose it because ultimately most things will change at a certain point. And, you know, talking about identity shift and you kind of brought it up a little bit now and talking about activism, um, I'd love to dive into that because I heard some pretty cool stories about you and doing some activism. So I'm curious, what came first, working on Switch for Good and then activism or activism came first and then you kind of got on Switch for Good? Oh, I've been an activist since I was seven years old when I wrote to President Nixon and asked him to stop pollution. And we got a letter back and I was nice. so excited. Like I felt like, oh, one person can make a difference. And then I noticed that then my sister and I, who she'd also written, we noticed that it was the same letter and that it was a form letter. But and so yeah, his yeah. signature was just a stamp. But that didn't deter us. Uh, we still felt like, OK, somebody heard us out there. So I yeah. Oh, gosh. Since I was, you know. My mother was somebody who she wasn't like a sign holding. I'm a sign holding more out there activist. She just always gave blood. She always um, voted. She we recycled. So th that is just part of my DNA. In fact, when I went to Hollywood and people weren't volunteering, I was just like, what? How can you not yeah. live and give to others? Because that's so uplifting and fulfilling. So yeah, I, I was big part of the peace movement and um, was very much part of the environmental movement was part of the dawn of electric cars. I'm, I think I might be the female who's been driving electric cars longer than anyone else owning electric cars longer than anyone else in America. And it's partly because I'm older. <laughs> but I got my first electric car I bought my first electric car in 1990. So what was it? It was a converted Datsun and it went 25 miles on a charge and I had to plug it in, in, a, in the wall and, and yeah. every week it had lead acid batteries. So I had to put water in the batteries every week. Uh, yeah. and so, yeah. Um, That's awesome. I got a lot it's of jokes from my way. friends. What? It's come a long way with electric cars. Going yes. 25 and miles. part of it was, I was very much a part of that moving electric cars in that was sort of uh, that is the one out of all the activism that i've done um you know peace i involved a lot with anti-nuclear and peace and that like hasn't worked out as well as electric yeah. cars but i'll keep at it <laughs> um but Good. i do feel like electric cars are the one thing that i've done where wow you know what and i actually sort of made a 
very conscious choice to move away because it had now become mainstream and I didn't need to be out there with the sign anymore. Um, yeah. Or, yeah. So, um, yeah. so I've been an activist for a long time. My, um, my animal activism um, started, I mean, I dabbled for years and years, of course, but um, my animal activism started after I became vegan, really. Um, and that's when I became much more involved and, and then became involved with an organization called Direct Action Everywhere, where we openly rescue animals from factory farm facilities. Um, we, we videotape it and share it with the world and we don't hide our faces because we believe what we're doing is right and what's going on in these factory facilities are wrong. Yeah. And so let's dive into that because like I mentioned, we're recording this. This is going to come out potentially the first week of January. So it'll only be two weeks since the podcast with doubts. It kind of went live. Um, she mentioned, did you get arrested or you, go to, or you went to court recently? I did. For one of the I activists. Did. Do you mind kind of sharing the story on that? Um, oh, thanks to Dotsie for, <laughs> um, yes, like, you have to I... ask her about that. <laughs> I, um, I was, uh, involved in a rescue of chickens from a factory farm slaughterhouse truck. And I rescued a chicken along with my co-defendant, Alicia Santurio. We both removed a chicken from a truck that was entering a slaughterhouse. We videotaped it. We videotaped the chicken's recovery. One of the chickens died right away almost, but the other chicken recovered and we put that out into the world to show people what's the differences between the life of an animal who is grows up as a foster farm's chicken and then gets slaughtered and the life of an animal, um, how they should be living in a sanctuary. So. And I've done many open rescues and been on videos and usually the farms, the facilities, I don't like to call them farms. Um, the facilities don't go after you because they don't want anything to come up in court about yeah. what's actually going on behind closed doors. So, um, but, so I was happy to go to court when I received a notice that I was going to be charged with theft um, because I want these um the laws to change and the only way the laws will change really is if people start testing them and yeah. so uh and bringing bringing these cases to court to show people that animals have should have rights and you know this case we won after nine day trial um we were Good. the jury found that we did not steal the chickens and that foster farms viewed them as having no value. They were extremely sick, both of them. And uh, they shouldn't have gone in, they shouldn't be, have been going into the food system anyway, but that's where they were headed. And that's yeah. why foster farms doesn't, another reason they don't want these things to go to court because this kind of information comes out. Yeah. And um, I think it was important that we activists don't try and plea out when we do yeah. get arrested. and. I've, I've been arrested um, over maybe two dozen times in my life um, with nonviolent, peaceful civil disobedience. And this is just another example of that. Yeah, just another one to the list. Oh, yes. <laughs> yep. And there'll be many more because uh, we're far from done and more of these 
more of these cases need to go to court so that the the laws around animals can change because right now farm animals have really no protections against abuse and what's happening in these facilities is egregious and everyone agrees it's not even content there's no contention every americans who see the videos that we shoot agree that it's terrible they just don't yeah. have the um, belief system that they can go vegan and not be part of it, not contribute. But you're, you know, you're one of those people that are helping people realize that, yeah, that we don't have to be part of this system. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, it is challenging because I think once people see the video, it's hard to deny it and it's hard to ignore it because you, even though you don't know anything about farming and procedures and kind of how to do things you know it's wrong automatically when you see it and yeah the big part i think is is education right for for people to be like well if i remove this thing that i believed my whole life was the one thing that i needed to eat which is protein every day then am i going to become sick right am i going to become weak that's kind of people's fear and so i think it just comes down to us continuing to do education and bringing to light the things that are happening in uh, in farming, but also being like, Hey, you can remove all this excess protein. It's not even good for you and you can still thrive, but it's getting that information out to, I feel like, you know, the outside of the States, New York's pretty good. LA's pretty good. California's pretty good, but the center of the United States is, is struggling a little bit more with vegan education, plant-based eating and kind of options being available. Education is a really important part of it. I agree. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell a story about myself when I was still vegetarian is that my friend, Karen Dawn, who is an, um, a, an animal activist and, um, she, she, um, she once sent out this newsletter or this video where she said, you know, if you're eating dairy, you really should watch this. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm still eating dairy. I should watch this. And it was this video. I think it was just horrific where the farmer was beating the cow and the calves and it was awful. And I, and I forced myself to watch it and I was yeah. sitting on my bed weeping, like weeping audibly crying at how awful it was. And that night, about five hours later, I got a frozen yogurt and I justified it. I thought, I don't know how, I mean, this is why I have so much empathy for how hard it can be, because even though we know in our heads what's right, it's, we have, so, we're rational human beings. That's what humans are, right? We can rationalize anything. Yeah. So I looked at this stuff coming out of this machine and it was so far away from the dirty farm that, and the cruelty that I saw that I was able yeah. to compartmentalize it. So education is such a huge part and support, like what you give your clients is so important. Um, and, but there's gotta be like some other impetus to keep us going. And I don't know, that switch happened to me quite suddenly on October 10th, but it, it, it can happen to anyone. It hasn't happened to my husband yet, by the way, my husband still eats meat where we not in our house, but he goes out and does whatever he wants. because. We've been together 28 years and that's part of the secret to our marriage is that we let each other be each other. But, yeah. um, uh, but yeah, so he hasn't made the connection and he's an athlete and he tells me, you know, yeah, part of me still has that thing in my head that says that pro I need protein as much as I tell him the information and, you know, he still has it from his childhood. It's really, oh, 
<laughs> yeah, it's like I said, it's it's planting the seed and just watering it, and then eventually it'll flourish, and then the change will happen. But for some people, it takes a really long time. And it's funny that we have people that are, I would say, more intense and knowledgeable like us. They have this. I would say they have the blessing of having us around them to educate them, and they still don't jump on it. Um, but yeah. I'll just give an example. Um, my my fiance Ivy, she was like a Mastro Steakhouse, like five star restaurant type of gal. And uh, when on our first date, she was like, "I'm gonna order salmon. Is that okay with you?" I was like, "Like you do what you want to do, right? Like I wouldn't want anyone to tell me what to do. I'm not gonna tell you what to do. That's fine." Now she's vegan. She's been vegan for eight months now. Um, and yeah, when we first started dating, I was like, hey, just I don't want meat or fish or chicken in my pans. That's all. Like yeah, we can buy a separate pan and then you can use that pan if you want to. But I'm like, right. I don't want it touching my pans or in the in the fridge. But yeah, I feel like it's easier to help women transition than it is to help men because men are still battling that little masculinity aspect of consuming animal products and animal protein. Um yeah, we yeah. see a lot more women come to our program to transition. Um, um, women are also more used to changing diets because we've been, like I said earlier, I mean, I've, I know that men also have struggled with food and body image and stuff, and, and you have that story too. So, but in general, they have a hard time. They, don't, they haven't been thinking about it since they hit puberty like women have especially in the United States. So it's harder for them to adapt to a big diet change, what they think is a big diet change. Yeah. So I, I'd love to go back to the, to, the, to the farming. What can people do to help in that regards? Like maybe some people will do some form of like activism like you're doing, but maybe some people aren't willing to do that. What are other things that they can do to help kind of move the movement forward? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, everybody in my, um, I believe that everyone has to do what suits their personality, like be authentic to yourself. If you feel uncomfortable, like I don't like going door to door and asking for money, for example, that terrifies yeah. me. And when I was 18, I was, you know, really involved with the nuclear movement. And I remember I was, they asked us all to go door to door and sign this thing for Southern Californians for a nuclear freeze. And I was so terrified that I went, I can't, I couldn't do it. And I came back to the office and I was so weeping because I was like, the world is going to be bombed and I can't go door to door. You know, I felt so <laughs> bad, but I've learned you got to do what you do best. Otherwise you'll just, you know, I probably would have sucked going door to door anyway, because I was so terrified. So I'm better holding signs, going into farms, you know, it's just, we all have different personalities. So you, if you, feel more comfortable writing checks than write checks to sanctuaries to or animal rights organizations like switch for good which is dotsie's organization or um, direct action everywhere which is promotes direct action of rescuing animals from factory farms there's also a lot of social media you can post um, if you want to do like hands-on sanctuaries really need help they need volunteers yeah. and when we need remove an animal from a farm we can't remove them all one of the reasons is because there's no place for them to go so these sanctuaries are um they're just it's takes so much money and and uh person power to keep yeah. them going so definitely see if you can um volunteer at a sanctuary um that that's 
really important. And it takes time, you know, just as someone who's been volunteering for things since I was a teenager, sometimes it takes time to find your place in, an, in a nonprofit or an organization or a movement, an issue. And um, you need to be proactive and offer your services. Don't just wait to sign up. Uh, oh, yeah, sure, I'll volunteer. No, tell them that, you know, you're great with computer programming and, and design your own app for them. You know, you, you, you've got to be proactive in getting involved because people who run nonprofits and sanctuaries, they're so busy, they don't have the time to tell you every, you know, every step they need you to do. So that would yeah, be my piece of advice. It's a lot better advice. if you come with your, it's a lot better if you come with your strengths. To be like, come hey, with I your, know your strengths. Yeah. yeah. Find out what they need. Of course, you got to listen to what they need. Like we do in health coaching, right? You find out yeah. what's going on with them, but then we, we offer what we have, um, and are proactive about it. Um, yeah. so. I love that you said that because when I first went vegan, I obviously wanted to do a lot of things for the movement. And then I heard about activism kind of like you're doing. And I was like, man, I'm scared shitless to do that. I was like, it does, it just didn't resonate with me to kind of go out and do that. My dad, we grew up very strict. So anything in regards to the police, you just are away from it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I finally found my place now, ultimately, like I help people become the shining light in their community. So if I can get someone, one of my clients to thrive and look great and feel energetic on a whole food plant-based diet, they go into their community, their light's going to touch everyone around them. And everyone's going to be like, hey, you look so great. What are you doing? And then you have the opportunity to share. And then it kind of has that ripple effect. So I found that that's my way of kind of impacting people. Um, because and yeah, so huge. far... Yeah, exactly. I think it has a more exponential effect when I when I do that. And that's more my place. I'm better at leading a large group of people. <laughs> yeah. So but yeah, activism, like I, I envy you. I just yeah. But you're an activist the... though. But you're an activist. In a, yeah, yeah. You have to remember that I am an actress where every you know, like getting arrested because you love animals or you, you know, you're against war does not is not a black mark on your career when there's other actors who are getting drunk or appearing and yeah, yeah. you know having drug convictions so it doesn't hurt my career um i am also do not have children so if i and i have a, a husband who's amazingly supportive so if i get arrested and i spend time in jail then he can take care of our cats and because i don't have to worry <laughs> you know i make sure there there's times when i've been an activist where i've had to say okay um, you know, I can't get arrested because I'm working the next day. I, I literally had that once when I was putting a peace sign into the Hollywood sign. It was during the Iraq war. And I was, we hung a, a, this peace sign in one of the O's of Hollywood. And as we were coming down, we got arrested by a ranger. And he's like, I'm going to arrest you unless you take that sign down right away. Now, if I hadn't had to go, be show up on a set the next morning, I would have been like, okay, see ya arrest me. I want that sign, you know, but because I had to show up in the set, I trod back up there and took down <laughs> that sign, that peace sign. It was up for maybe two hours. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So everybody has to do what's best for them. They cannot blow up their lives for activism. Otherwise you're no good for anybody. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have to be, and, and be well-rounded, like You've got other stuff going on. You've got Ivy. You've got your 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 business. You you can't just um, destroy those. Otherwise, you know you yeah. won't have an effect in the long run. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, I'd love to, obviously another area where you're having impact is with Switch for Good. So how did that kind of come about? Um, and I'm curious now that I know your story, is it because dairy was the last thing that you needed to cut that kind of made you want to go do Switch for Good? No. So it is a funny story. So I was looking to do a podcast and um, I had hooked up with um, a couple of people, a couple of people, but they weren't that proactive. And I found I was like leading them. One was yeah. um, in the vegan space and another one was in a different space, but I, I felt like I was doing the work. And then I'm on a panel with Dotsie and um, I'm, I'm backstage and she walks in with her husband, Kirk, and they're like beautiful, right? They're just this beautiful couple. And I'm like, oh, and I knew that she was going to be on the panel with me. It was a athlete's panel at Mercy for Animals. And um, I'm like, she, they've, she is like awesome. And then she was on the panel and I thought, you know what? She has drive. She has commitment. She's, she is, you know, passionate and she also had an eating disorder like I. So we were two women who struggled with disordered eating and we cared about um, animals and being healthy. So I called her and I said, do you want to do a podcast together? And she said, wow, uh, okay. <laughs> and then yeah. as we're developing it, she goes, you know, I've just started this organization called Switch for Good. What if we put our podcast under the Switch for Good banner? And, I'm, and I said, sure. I mean, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. And if it can help switch for good and we, it's all good. So that's how it happened. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was, oh, that's it incredible. Was, uh, yeah, it was great. How long has switch for good been around now? So the organization, the organization has been around since I think 2000, I want to say 2018. Um, okay. I think it started then because she um she started it after the olympics was there an, there was an olympics in 2018 yeah and um she had organized all these anti-dairy ads that played during the olympics yeah. <clears throat> because you know dairy has sponsored the olympics for eons um, the got milk campaign and stuff and um so she, that's she started it after that after um, so it was 2018, and then we we were working together in 2018, developing the project, and our first podcast aired in February of 2019. Oh, beautiful! Yeah, we definitely we definitely talked about the dairy industry sponsoring the Olympics. Um, I think it was a it was a big conversation. So I'm curious, like for all the work that you're doing, how can people support? Obviously, we talked about the the farming, but for Switch for Good, do you have any other projects that you're working on that? people can support in any way that they can with oh, their strength. Yes, with their strengths. Thank you. In the way that's most authentic to them. Um, you know, I'm, you know, still very involved with direct action everywhere. So I um, really encourage people to go and see if, you know, they have chapters all around the world. So if they don't have to go into factory farm facilities, um, there's so many ways to be an activist through direct action everywhere. And of course, switch for good. Um, but otherwise, no, I'm, um, I just would love it if people would, you know, think about being kind, to, you know, Ingrid Newkirk said, be kind, be kind, be kind. And that is the mantra that I have used my in this part of my life, because I realized be nice, be nice, be nice was just did not help anybody. And especially not me. And so, yeah, I just hope people will be kind, be kind, be kind in 2024 
Um, and and that 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 really answers so many of my questions. Like if I don't know what to do, that's my mantra. Like yeah. what's the kindest thing? Yeah. So you mentioned direct action. What's the website for that? Uh, directactioneverywhere.com. And okay. I think, yeah, so it's directactioneverywhere.com. It's a, it's oh, a nonprofit. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll link for the people listening. I'll put it in the description on YouTube and podcasts, uh, along with the switch for good as well, because I know there was, uh, we talked about a bill to be able to change the milk in schools so that there would be soy milk. Is that, did that go live? You guys need, still need more signature. For yes. Those? We still need signatures for that bill. And, um, I think, Unfortunately, what happens is my understanding is for a bill, if it doesn't get passed within the calendar year, then it has to start all over again. So we will need okay. to get support for that. So to go to switchforgood.org to look to sign um, that petition, uh, to, to, uh, uh, sorry, go to switchforgood.org to find out what you need to say to your representative if you're living in the United States. Um, so that they will know to vote for the Ad Soy Act, which is what the, the bill is called. Also, yeah. just to, one last thing, what people can do in 2024 is to vote. Please vote. Whatever you're good, whatever you, however you want to vote, please vote because it's so important. And vote in your local elections too, because that is super, super duper important. Not as glamorous, but um, yeah. It's so important. I just love voting so much. And I've spent many, I spent 18 years registering voters once a week on the streets of Los Angeles. Um, I'm just a huge proponent of, uh, you know, voting and our ability to, to you know, exercise that freedom. Yeah. Well, when I'm allowed to in the United States, I will go and vote. <laughs> still, still Canadian for now. So hopefully, okay. Hopefully well, you can vote in Canada. Year. You can vote in Canada. Your system is a little better. It doesn't spend take two years to elect a president. I think you. I yeah. think in Canada, you have you have only a sort of a six week period where you're allowed to spend money and and um, uh, proselytize uh, the, the candidates. It's so yeah, much it's saner a shorter time than the frame. United States. Yeah. 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 So when I'm allowed to, I will vote. But for everyone listening uh, else, go vote. Again, I will put all the link in the description. Alexandra, I want to say massive thank you for taking the time. I know it's a little bit later in the day. I'm happy we're able to get the podcast in. And uh, yeah, you'll be kicking off. Um, you'll be kicking off 2024 with our first episode. Oh, I'm so I'm so happy. Thank you, Maxime, for having me. It's always a pleasure to see you and speak with you. You're really a shining light. You do so much good in the world. Thank you. I appreciate that. And hopefully we get to connect in person next year. That'd be all. You mean next year, 2025? <laughs> uh, 2024. Yeah, yeah, 2024. This will come out in January. Yeah, in 2024. Because you're, you're in California, right? Well, no, now I'm oh, in, no, Oregon you're in Oregon with my mom. Yes. Yeah, I'm in Oregon with um, my mom, but not far. Uh, how far is Seattle? Seattle's in Oregon, right? It's Washington. My... It's right north. Yeah. Do you go to okay. Seattle? Well, there's a there's a vegan expo, Planted Expo, happening in April 20th to 21st. I'll be speaking there. Oh, um, okay. I think Doutsy spoke at the one in Canada potentially a while back. Um, I was supposed to share the stage with her and, and Ritual, but I was legally not allowed to go back in Canada at the time. So now I'm locked into the States, so I'll be able to go. So yeah, Seattle in April. So maybe we can connect there. That would be wonderful. 
Awesome. Well, again, thank you for jumping on the show, everyone. Thank you very much for listening and hope you all have an amazing 2024 and we'll see you guys in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to rate the podcast as it helps us grow and spread our message. And if you know this will help and resonate with someone, be sure to send it their way so that they can have the opportunity to level up their life as well.